Um, well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming out on a Monday evening. Um, and thank you for Professor Coker. I, as uh, Dr. Coker may have intimated, um, was a long-lost wayward um, mercenary, quote-unquote, uh, private military security contractor in Africa who had um, seen some things that made me want to think deeply about how, you know, what happens when you privatize war, how does that change warfare? Um, and I wanted to think deeply about it, and I was at Harvard at the time and left Harvard to come and study at the LSE with Christopher Coker, uh, who, in my opinion, was, uh, and I can say this now safely without being accused of being a sycophant, uh, one of the finest minds on warfare. Uh, now I'm a professor at the National Defense University, where I professionally teach warmongering and other things like that. So um, thank you very much. I come from a different background where uh, I am not simply a... Um, a student who was looking into archives I actually had lived this before. I was an officer and a paratrooper in the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division. And after that, like some of my colleagues, I joined the private sector for warriors um, and spent many, t many years in Africa where I raised armies for, frankly, for U.S. interests. Um, I engaged in the Victor Bout Run uh, transferring small arms from Eastern Europe to Africa, as if Africa needs more small arms, um, and uh, working with former warlords to make a better future in countries like Liberia, in Burundi, and other places in the continent. Um, my work was all for the U.S. government, and I had noticed that the world of the private military industry was you know, obviously highly opaque. And it's closed off to journalists and researchers and scholars. In fact, in some ways, the CIA and the, the Pentagon are more transparent than this industry. The reason is, is because if you're a researcher or a journalist in the U.S. government, well, anybody, can file what they call a Freedom of Information Act. And you say, here's what I want to know, CIA, tell me it. And they may not tell you everything or anything, but they still have to respond to you. This industry doesn't have to do that. In fact, they hide behind proprietary knowledge for reasons they can't share anything. They'll show you the marketing points, the PowerPoint, but that's all they will do. Um, and I had seen as a result crazy, in my opinion, left-wing and right-wing rhetoric about this industry. And I wanted to write a three-dimensional book that sort of explains what the industry is, what it's not, what it can do, and what it can't do, as well as the benefits and risks. And this, after many years... Uh, became the modern mercenary. I could have written a tell-all book, you know, about DynCorp International in 2006 or seven, made a million dollars and be sued to death today by DynCorp. I chose not to do that, although the latter could still happen. Um, but uh, knock on wood, um, uh, that's not what happened. So today, tonight I want to talk to you about three things. One is, how did we get here? Not the broad sweep, which the book goes into, but in the, the, the last decade of war, as we say now in Washington, D.C., quaintly. Um, the second are, you know, is four trends of the private military industry today that nobody's seeing. And the, lastly, closing out what this means for international security governance, what it means for international politics. And I don't mean that with any hyperbole. It means a great deal. So let's start with the, sort of the scope and scale of contracting um, in the last 10 years, because, you know, mercenaries and private military contractors have always been there, right? It's the second oldest profession. 
but 9-11 catapulted it out of obscurity. For a while, for a couple of centuries, it was in the shadows. Before that, it was pretty prim- you know, most military history had a significant private military history component to it. Um, but 9-11 really kind of, the U.S.'s uses of it really catapulted it. So let me give you some, distru- some sort of disruptive facts. So in 2010, the Pentagon's budget for contracting was $366 billion. That's over 50%, 54% of the D- Department of Defense's budget was for contracting, was obligated for contracting. That is seven times the entire UK's MOD budget. Okay? Now, if I ask you, of those contractors, how many were armed, what percentage do you think you would say? Um, not, not rhetorically, just ask. 60%? 8? 8? 12? What else? You have a thumbs down. Let's. Lower than 60, I would say 10. 10? Okay. So some of people have been reading... Uh, probably not my book, but I would hope that you would. Um, so the answer is about 10 to 15%. Okay? The vast majority of contractors used in Iraq and Afghanistan did things like cook food and you know, change tires and trucks and clean things up and were linguistics. Um, the, you know, most of them were, were quote-unquote innocuous. Only about 10 to 15% were armed or trained others to kill, like train military forces. And that's the subject of the modern mercenary. Um, it's these ones. And I, I lump them together because to me, if you're training somebody to kill, you're in the same moral universe as those who actually pull the trigger. And if you could do one, you can do the other. Um, when I was working at DynCorp, you know, I, w- I could do either one of these. I was trained to do either one of these. Trained not by DynCorp, but by the US Army. Um, and so for the book, this is what I look at. It's a pri- I call these private military companies. Private military companies are not private security because they deploy violence, uh, organized violence, as militaries do. These are conflict entrepreneurs who are expeditionary in nature that train, either kill people or train others to kill. This is, these are not whack and hut guards at the mall. Um, and these, you know, they, they deploy force in a military-like manner. And the question, of course, is what happens when this becomes prevalent internationally? That's what I look at. So let me ask you another question. What percentage of the U.S. sort of workforce, if you will, in war zones was contracted, do you think, in Iraq, Afghanistan? How many, how many percentage, how many contractors were there com- compared to troops? 60. 60%? 50-50? 50-50? Uh, 20%. 20%? Okay, so the answer is, in Iraq, 50-50, there was a one-to-one ratio. For every troop, there was a contractor. In Afghanistan, it was closer to 70%. 70%. Now, World War II was 10%. In Vietnam, it was 25%. By the time the last 10 years, it is 50 to 70%. Now... What percentage do you think were taking the hits? Troops versus contractors during the wars? 90%. What? 90% troops. 90% troops? Is that it? 90% troops? Okay. So you were correct in 2002. 
But as the wars went on, here bluer troops, redder contractors. As the wars went on, it flipped. So by 2010 and later, the uh, contractors were doing more of the ultimate sacrifice uh, for the contract, if you will. So I'm going to take a guess of what kind of contractors were getting hit the most, because we remember the pie chart earlier with many different types of contractors. What, you want to take a guess? What? Security. Security. Logistics and transport. Logistics and transport. So the answer is, is truck drivers, logistics and transport. They were you know, heading on roads to way off bases without much security, getting whacked. They were soft targets. Um, so they did most of the dying. Um, so, you know, this gets to the point of, of um, you know, despite the numbers, though, you know, armed contractors are 10%, 15%. Don't let the numbers fool you. Armed contractors have a disproportionate strategic effect, especially when it comes to strategic failure. Do we all remember Nisor Square in Baghdad? where a squad-sized element of Blackwater contractors uh, killed 17 innocent uh, Iraqi civilians in a traffic accident, or traffic, traffic firefight. Um, that became a firestorm for the United States of America globally. The Secretary of State had to apologize n- not just to Iraq, but to the entire Middle Eastern region on the eve of the Winning Hearts and Minds campaign counterinsurgency. And back home in the U.S., there was multiple investigations, uh, FBI, Department of Defense, you name it, uh, as well as congressional hearings, uh, et cetera. And Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, he was, you know, before congressional testimony, he was asked point blank by a congressman, what happens to contractors who kill innocent people? Does that mean what his answer was? Nothing, yes, but he was actually much more poetic, and I don't think he was intending to be. It's like, they get aisle or window. <laughs> they go home, right? Now, those, those contractors actually last year uh, got sentenced to like 30 years in federal uh, prison, although the case has a lot of problems with it. And we might say that's horrible, right? There's no accountability, but who here remembers Haditha? Remember Haditha? A group of, a squad of U.S. Marines killed not 17, but 23 uh, Iraqis. And not in a fog of war incident, in a, in a traffic accident, but like uh, sort of reprisal killing for losing. They, one of their squad mates got killed, two of them. And they went like My Lai, Vietnam, went house to house, killing people who are three-year-olds to 70 year olds in wheelchairs in their pajamas. Um, does anybody know happened to them? Nothing. There wasn't even an investigation. The Department of Defense investigated its own. They chalked it up. They blamed the enemy, said this was an unfortunate incident in a war of irregular warfare, and uh, we'll move forward. So we have to be careful that we don't cavil too much against uh, the wanton behavior of contractors and also look at our sort of so-called professional soldiers. All right, so how do we get to this point? I mean, I get, when I talk to international um, experts and journalists, they will ask me, okay, so the last war is 60, 70% was contracted. Is this the new American way of warfare? Are you outsourcing all your warfare? Will future wars be 80% contracted? 90%? Will there be an American foreign legion? Right? And I don't have an answer for that. Trend lines would certainly indicate that. So um, how did the U.S. get to this state? How did it end up 
hiring, you know, 50 to 70% of its, of its military workforce is contracted. And these aren't Americans, by the way. The private military industry is, it's a multinational, these are multinational corporations, just like Walmart or General Electric. When I was in DynCorp, people next to me were from Mexico, from Ghana, from Australia, from all over the world. You know? And when I was also, I was a paratrooper doing some work, and there'd be a paratrooper from Guatemala, and I was being paid something close to my American salary, and he was being paid something close to his Guatemalan salary, which is a fraction of my salary for doing the exact same work. It's just like global commerce. Um, this is the reason why T-shirts are made in places like Bangladesh versus, you know, United States of America. Um, so why did this happen? The answer is because the U.S. military is, a U- is an all-volunteer force, and they could not recruit enough volunteers to fight two sustained wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So in 2004, it became clear that you know, Iraq would not embrace America as liberators, exactly. Policymakers had some pretty awful decisions. The first is that they could withdraw prematurely, cede the field of battle to terrorists during the so-called war of terrorism, global war of terrorism. This was, would be considered political suicide at the time, so they said, we can't do that. We're not going to pursue an isolationist policy as a grand strategy. The second thing they could do is, is assume that allies will plug all U.S. gaps, which is unrealistic. The third thing they could do was have a draft, like Vietnam, to fill all the spots they needed to be filled, the 50%. That would be political, sui- political suicide. So they ended up contracting the difference. Both Republicans, George W. Bush, and Obama. You'll be curious to know that Senator Obama proposed some legislation to regulate this industry that President Obama has not seemed to actualize on. They're politically expedient. Now, there are a lot of benefits to the industry. Um, They are generally cheaper, just like renting a car is cheaper than owning one. They can do certain things better. They can do logistics better and cheaper. They can raise security forces better, as we've recently seen again with U.S. military efforts in Syria to raise security forces. The U.S. military, in my opinion, is horrifically incompetent at security force assistance. Um, They they have surge capacity. And if you need specialists, like, you know, we need a human rights law specialist, you can source that quickly in the private sector. If you're a bureaucrat in the State Department, it might take a year to do that. I did that all the time when I was in uh, the private sector. Uh, And there's some other things that they can do better. Um, there are some issues as well, some risks. Firstly, there's legitimacy issues, ethical issues, when you link um, killing with profit motive. Um, there are conflict of interest issues, when you have you know, public ends with private means. Um, you have a lot of moral hazard issues. Um, so having a new tool in the toolkit for going to war and doing clandestine operations abroad can lower the barriers of entry to war. So contractors afford some plausible deniability that certain policymakers might like. Um, they also don't count as boots on the ground, uh, so, which is politically sensitive in places like the United States. Like, <clears throat> where, you know, people are worried about mission creep in Iraq and in Syria. Nobody, you, know, you could have like 3,000 troops there, but you might have 5,000 contractors. Who would know? Nobody knows. Nobody seems to be terribly fussed about dead contractors. 
we would all be very upset if Marines were captured, put in orange jumpsuits, had their heads decapitated on YouTube by ISIS. If it was a contractor, we'd say, ah, oh, they, well, they knew that, right? <clears throat> so there are, a lot of, there are a lot of issues with it. Now, the book goes in great detail about the pros and cons of contracting. I make a case that um, there are certain benefits and there are certain risks. How do we do things so we maximize the benefits and minimize the risks? But I don't want to talk about that right now. I want to talk about the future, all right? So there are four trends on the horizon right now uh, of contracting. The first trend is that um, contractors are here to stay. This idea, I remember uh, before I had Professor Coker as my advisor, my, my advisor at Harvard was Ash Carter, who's now Secretary of Defense. And I asked him, like, in 2004 or something, what do you think about private military contracts? He's like, oh, they're going to go away and we're done with them. Uh, that's not true. These are not cheap reservists who will be demobilized when the country's done with their service. These are profit-maximizing en- entities. It's a billion-dollar industry. Billion dollar. It doesn't evaporate overnight. They will find new clients, and they are doing that right now. Also, the U.S. has de facto legitimized their use. We've been using them for 10 years. Can we or anybody else really say, you know, the military superpower has been using them for 10 years. Why can't we? And we've seen that recently with Nigeria, right? Nigeria, one of the, the sort of the regional hegemon of Western Africa, has a very strong military. For six years, has struggled against Boko Haram. This past spring, they hired mercenaries uh, to go in with their forces and move Boko Haram out. And they did. They did. Now people are asking, should we use them against al-Shabaab? Or how about ISIS? Can we use them against ISIS? That's being asked right now. Um, The second trend is the industry is going native. It's it's indigenization. So warlords in Afghanistan are now selling their clan as private military companies. And the U.S. has hired them in the past in in the war of Afghanistan. Uh, We see this in al-Shabaab. We see this other places as well. Uh, We see, uh, anecdotally, Latin American special forces soldiers going to the Gulf states, working for Abu Dhabi as they're in a sort of a foreign legion. Um, So the industry, it's it's no longer just a U.S.-U.K. industry, and there was a U.K., you know, uh, armor group and some olive... There's a couple of companies out, private military companies out there. So this is no longer a U.S. phenomenon or a Western phenomenon. Others are getting in the game. Companies are coming out of Uganda, going to Somalia. And there's a couple reasons for this. There's two reasons. One is that these companies like Armor Group would go to Afghanistan, and they have to secure big portions of land. And they didn't have enough people to do it. So they do is they, they create or hire a subcontractor, a smaller local Afghan you know, security company. They call them subs. Well, when, when Armor Group's you know, contract is up, they go home to London, but that sub is still there. And they've got to fend for themselves, and they find new clients, and they do. They can work for NGOs. They can work for politicians. They can work for whomever. Or they can become banditos, right? Um, the other reason this is going native is that these are multinational corporations. When I was in DynCorp, like I said, I worked with people from all over the world next to me. Well, when they leave that job, they go home. And some of them might even start their own private military company. Not huge like DynCorp or Blackwater, but small, niche. Maybe like the ones in Nigeria. So we're seeing this industry becoming um, indigenized. The third trend is we're seeing it go global. It's proliferating. 
So among four of the five domains of war. So there are five domains of warfare, right? There's land. We've seen a lot of private military companies in land. Also, sea is a second one. We've seen a lot of you know, anti-piracy, whose headquarters of the industry is right here in London. They sail in the Gulf of Guinea, in Africa, Gulf of Aden, Malacca Straits, and they'll have like a, a, an arsenal ship. And this arsenal ship will be contractors, armed contractors. And if you're like, you know, a tanker going through pirate waters, they will helicopter armed contractors to your ship, who will then fend off pirates as you go through pirate water, and then they'll helicopter them back to the arsenal ship. We're seeing the third domain is, is air. We're seeing contractors explore drones. Drones are cheap. Not the global predator hawks and stuff like that, but like the cheap ones. You get them on Amazon, I'm sure. And it wouldn't take much to, you know, kamikaze them, rig them for demolition. Now, right now, companies are looking at, you know, unarmed drones for reconnaissance, but it wouldn't take much to arm them and make them to, to suicide drone, droners, I guess. The fourth domain is space. Now, we're not seeing uh, any armed, you know, privatized space flight, but we're seeing privatized space flight, SpaceX, et cetera. And the last domain of warfare is cyber. We are seeing, you know, cyber mercenaries. <clears throat> They're called hackback companies. Anybody heard of hackback companies? Hackback companies are like four, they're hackers. So just say you're a company, okay? And uh, I'm like McFate Co. And I run a sweatshop of academics, okay? And, um, <clears throat> and there's another, my competitor is like King's College, right? And, uh, and we're all being hacked because people really want our papers. And um, so um, we don't want to be hacked. So what we do... Now, in, in, the, in the United States of America, and I think in EU, it's illegal for companies to play offense. They can only play defense. So if you're a company, all you can do is put up cyber defense. You can't, if you're hacked by China or the Russian mob, you can't go after them. You can't do offense. It's illegal. So, um, but I don't like that because, you know, the government's not, not protecting me. So what I do is I hire hackers. And if I get hacked, the hackers will go after the other hackers. And, go, and, and nail them. Now, they can't recover what they took from me, but they can be a deterrent. So if, you've, you, if you have, like, you know, Russian mob people looking at you, looking at me, at, you know, LLC, you know, McFate Co., and looking at King's, and I have a hackback company behind me, and King's doesn't, they might go for the softer target. That's the theory. Whether deterrence works in cyberspace is, is a question for somebody's thesis out there, all right? But we, we see proliferation. We see new demand and new supply. We see companies coming out of you know, places like Uganda and Afghanistan that supply. We see new demand. We see you know, uh, extractive industry, oil, gas, timber, using them. We see NGOs using them. Some might say, and I, in the end of the book, I suggest under certain circumstances that the UN consider using them to augment peacekeeping operations, which are thinning under certain circumstances, which I get into in the book. Not carte blanche and not like the U.S. model, which is here's a blank check. You know, don't screw it up. Um, so we're seeing the industry proliferate. The last trend is a little bit more complicated. We're seeing the industry bifurcate as well. So there are two different types of, of military contractors. There are mercenaries, and they're exactly what you think they are. They are for-profit, um, autonomous private armies or private navies, they can wage autonomously offensive military campaigns. Um, this is what Nigeria used. 
They're pretty, they work pretty much for whoever will pay for them. Human rights, et cetera, that's, that doesn't, they don't really concern themselves with that unless the client concerns themselves with that. The second type are military enterprisers. This is a more of a hybrid uh, between mercenaries and national armies. They work in public-private partnerships, or they prefer to, with a single state. And they don't wage independent warfare. What they do is they raise security forces and augment bigger national armies. And this comes from the Thirty Years' War with military enterprisers like Wallenstein, who raised you know, tens of thousands of troops for the Holy Roman Emperor. So sort of quickly here, um, some of the differences between the two of them is military enterprisers do not conduct autonomous missions, right? They generally want to work for a government, and they generally want to work monogamously with one government versus the mercenary model, which is more like Vegas, right? Um, and the mercenaries create a free market for force, which we'll talk about in a second, a free market for force. Whereas if you have military enterprisers, that's what I call a mediated market for force. If, you've got a, if you're working just for one you know, government like the UK, you generally want to respect its laws and its norms so you have long-term business. As a result, the UK, the client, actually has some real say in your behavior. Whereas the mercenaries, it's not. <clears throat> it's, to me, today they might be working for the UK, tomorrow they could be working for China. By the way, does anybody know where Eric Prince is working for these days, the founder of Blackwater? What's that? XC. XC? No, that was, that was two years ago. You're a little bit late. Uh, so Academy, yep, that's like one year ago. You're still too late. So Blackwater rebetted. Does anybody know? He's working for China and Africa. So Blackwater, so Eric Prince used to be flag-waving after New Square Square. Oh, yes, we're good Americans. I'm an ex-seal. He's now working for China and Africa. So he's more in this column, I'd say. Um, so examples of mercenaries in, in recent years. Um, executive Outcomes, EO, a South African company in the 1990s, now defunct, came out of post-apartheid Africa. Um, very effective. Very effective. They say that the mercenaries that were hired by Nigeria were most of them, a lot of more former EO guys. Now I was in Africa. I ran in. They have their own alumni network, if you will. They don't have a magazine. They don't ask for money. But um, they, they do have their own network of EO guys. And they would come to me and say, we'd be great. And, I would, I, I, and they had all the skills I wanted, except they had some branding issues and some other issues. Um, but they were a no-kidding uh, mercenary corporation. Blackwater, Dyncore, Triple Canopy, Armor Group, these were military enterprisers. They were not mercenaries. They augmented bigger, uh, they augmented the coalition forces. Um, they abided by the, 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 the norms of the, as much as they could. But here's the issue. The line between military enterpriser and mercenary is blurry. If you can do one, you can do the other. If Dyncor, well, okay, strike that. <laughs> if Blackwater created an army in, say, a place like Liberia, um, they had the skill to do it. They also had the skill to, to lead it and deploy it. Um, they chose, you know, the contract circumstances, the market circumstances dictate this. It's not the abilities. 
So if you can do one, you can do the other. It's mostly market-driven. Mostly market-driven. Now, some, some people would not do it. Some, you know, contractors say, I'm not going to work for China. I'm not going to lead an army for ExxonMobil, right? But it's up to the individual. There's, market circumstances would dictate that it could be the other way around, all right? Um, <clears throat> so lastly, what does this mean for global governance, international relations? Um, now, this idea of for-profit warfare is not new. It's actually quite old, very old. If you look at the Middle Ages in Europe, for example, mercenaries were how wars were fought for the most part. Well, they were a big part of it. There were knights and there were other things too, but there was a major, there was a major market for force. It was simply too expensive to hire and maintain a standing army. France began to do that early on um, in the 14th, 15th century. Um, but really, wars were fought by hiring contractors. In fact, mercenaries were not called mercenaries. They're called contractors. They're called condottieri, which means contractor in Italian. And North Italy was like Afghanistan is today. It's hard to believe, I know. But it was the conflict market. That's where everybody went. And, and every, there was no stigma against it. I mean, there were some. Uh, some didn't like it. But the, you know, hiring a contracted army was no different than hiring a, a contracting engineer firm to dig your moat or to paint your picture, your family's portraits. Different type of contractor, that's all. And many noble you know, sons, sons of nobility, who were not inheriting the estate and didn't go to the priesthood, became mercenary captains. Many of did. It was considered an honorable but bloody trade. Disbelieve Machiavelli. He got burned by his mercenary. He was bitter ever since, right? His wars against Pisa in 1500, 1506, he got turned around. It wasn't so good for him. Um, many mercenaries, including Sir John Hawkwood, uh, served Florence, for example, nobly. Sir John Hawkwood was one of the greatest mercenary captains of his day. He, if you go to the Domo in Florence, you will see a little enclave to him to honor him in their, in their cathedral. Uh, he served faithfully for 17 years until he died. So, um, and mercenaries were considered, that's how, I mean, the, you know, Pope, the popes hired mercenary armies. Pope Innocent III especially loved mercenary armies. Um, and the book goes into some of this. Um, the idea of the stigma against mercenaries is tied greatly with the rise of the state in the monopoly of force. Without getting too academic here, I look at the work of uh, Charles Tilly and Mansur Olson on this. Um, but we can say that for, for Q&A or not even discuss at all. Um, but the point is, is that the Middle Ages, far from being the Dark Ages, was a functional world order that's very different than today. States did not have a monopoly in force. They didn't have a monopoly on legitimacy either. As a result, you had overlapping authorities in the global world order that was the Middle Ages. And for this, I look at Hedley Bull, for example. And he, in the back of anarchical society, which I'm sure you've all committed to memory, right? Um, he looks at alternative world orders to the state-centric system. And in 1977 or 76, when he was writing that, he looked at this idea of new medievalism, of that states don't have a monopoly of anything. And they're just one actor on a crowded world stage. And he looked at it and he said, at that point in time, it was not viable that there could be a world order that was anything but state-centric. So he dismissed it. And part of what I do in the book is take that same framework and reassess it using his own framework of five 
characteristics of what neo-medievalism is, one of which is the rise of private military force. And I find a lot of evidence for neo-medievalism today. Now, this would create something, what I call durable disorder. Durable disorder describes sort of a world environment that, a world order that can contain but not solve problems. This is a world order where you don't have a state-centric, you know, states figuring out how to deal with issues. In a world where anybody who, you know, if you have the rise of private military companies, mercenaries specifically, that anybody who can afford the means of war can wage it for whatever reason they want. And that will dramatically change world politics. Dramatically, if that happens. You know, we're, not talking, we're not talking tomorrow. This is not a, this is, this, if we're on the same, you know, if we were on an autopilot for the next 100 years. Um, and a couple things would happen. First of all is that ultra-wealthy could become a new type of superpower. Now, I'm not talking about, like, okay, Goldman Sachs gets an army tomorrow. I'm not, not talking about that, okay? Um, but the point is, is that if you can afford it, if the norms against um, the monopoly of force by states, as Max Weber in 19, 1919 discusses, if that erodes, and now it's, it's a new market for force reappears as it did three or 400 years ago, um, new types of superpowers will emerge with new agendas, it also create demand <clears throat> for more mercenaries, right? If you, if you commodify conflict, you create a demand signal whereby people will start saying, hey, I can do this too. We're not talking big companies. We're talking smaller things, as we see in Nigeria, uh, Syria, eastern Ukraine, etc. okay? Um, if you have more mercenaries, you'll probably see more war. So... Mercenaries are not incentivized to end conflict. Um, they are incentivized in the Middle Ages. We have a lot of evidence of this, of, co- of starting conflicts, because it's once it, security is a, a supply that can create its own demand through racketeering. So think of Tony Soprano or Don Carleone. Pay me protection money, and I won't you know, mess with you this month. I'll be back next month. Um, that's what happened in the Middle Ages. The town of Siena was like sacked 40 times in 200 years by mercenaries. Uh, And not talking like small bands, we're talking like thousands of mercenaries. Um, That could happen again. Also, um, war itself will change. The strategies of war will change. If you commoditize conflict again, war will be, strategies will emerge that mimic the marketplace. So for example, let's take our example of LSE versus Kings. We don't have anybody from Kings here, right? Okay, good. All right, okay. <coughs> LSE versus, we'll just stick with Kings, but yes. Um, the worst study, the worst studies department, okay? So um, we, um, one of the things you can do in, if you have marketplace strategy, just say LSE is tired of Kings, oh, whatever. We're going to take it over once and for all. I mean, we want that building anyway, right? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to hire a lot, you know, mercenary army, as one does, naturally. But we're also going to deny a defense to kings by hiring every mercenary unit in the region. Because remember, standing armies are too expensive. Nobody can, nobody can afford them. Um, so we're going to hire every mercenary in the region so they can't go to anybody. We retain them all. And we show up to crush them on battle day. And then lo and behold, half of our mercenaries turn and fight us. And what they did underneath us is bribe out 
half of our force, right? These are the tactics of Wall Street. This is not the tactics of CrossFits or a strategy of CrossFits. So when you marketize military operations, you also introduce new types of stratagems into how warfare is conducted. And that can change warfare. It can change how and, how and why we fight. This is contract warfare. It's like contract killing, but wholesale. Um, <clears throat> so lastly, I, I discuss this in the book as neo-medievalism. You know, a world of overlapping authorities uh, where states sort of recede to the... They don't go away, they don't fail, but other things are now international actors like multinational corporations, international organizations, NGOs, the media, etc. And with the world of private militaries now, it's possible that they can enforce their will through any means possible. Um, and, um, and I will leave you with a story. Like, you know, this is not just pure science fiction either. So in 2008, uh, I was asked by an NGO, I mean, a famous Hollywood actress whose name will go un, unspoken here, um, wanted to hire Blackwater to stage a humanitarian intervention in Darfur to end the genocide. And um, at the same time, this actor slash actress wanted to give money to an NGO to publicize this, to name and shame the UN and the international community to a more robust mission in Darfur to end the genocide. And this NGO, one of the NGOs this person approached came to me and, on a pro bono basis and said, well, you know, one, can Blackwater really do this? And B, should we do it? And I looked at this, actually for DynCorp, um, quietly. Um, DynCorp just couldn't figure out how to get paid for it. So like, we can't do it. Um, it was really hard to do. Um, but the answer is that Blackwater, Blackwater could have done this, actually, in 2008. They had a unit that could have done this. Maybe for days, maybe even for weeks. They create islands of humanity and allow civilians in and keep the genocide years out, the Janjaweed, and hold down the fort during which the NGO would do a global name and shame campaign to, to, against the UN. And um, but the question is, should they do it? At the end of the day, all parties decided not to do it. But I can imagine a future when some oligarch wants to create a you know, legacy for him or herself and wants to end a genocide, not just do something awful. But then what do you risk? You risk, you know, besides overturning complete international law and what that would mean, um, do you risk sucking in other countries like the U.S. into a conflict? The law of unintended consequences, do you make it worse than better? I mean, all sorts of other things could happen. So we're, the, the, this, this is happening today. This is not over the horizon. It's happening quietly under our feet. It's gradual. It's not sudden. Uh, and in some ways, uh, I, I would suggest that the 21st century might look more like the 12th century than the 20th century in terms of global governance. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you very much for that. You really have covered a, a wide area from international relations to specific uh, companies and even an actress who I think I know who is the one not entirely un unassociated with the LSE, in fact. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, comes back to the LSE. We all know who she is. Yeah.
So, uh, do we have a microphone or do we not have a microphone? Yes, we do. Um, if you would care to ask uh, any questions, please identify yourself and wait for the microphone to actually arrive. It may just take a few minutes. Right in the centre there. Okay. Thank you. Great talk. Uh, my name is Stuart McIver. I'm the owner of Get Best Brand. Uh, my question to you is, is it more efficient to use mercenaries than it is to use governments? Is it a better route commercially, financially, politically? And um, do they win more often? Tricky question. Um, so let's look at Boko Haram, right? Nigeria hired mercenaries who got to Boko Haram, the details of which are pretty cloudy. Um, they, for six years, they were trying to struggle against it. Now, were their intentions noble? I don't know. It was during an election year. Um, but mercenaries are, are up front probably more efficient and effective. They can also um, do things that militaries may not want to do. And I don't mean this in a positive light. I'm talking about in a negative light. They can commit human rights atrocities. And, and the, the client could say, oh, it wasn't our military. I'm so sorry. It was this terrible company. We wash our hands. Now, whether they can effectively wash their hands or not, that's a different question for international uh, governance. But um, there are certain things they can do. Now, will the U.S. You know, ever hire a mercenary division? No, it's not likely. But I think weaker states or fragile states or states that have a lot of money but don't have a populace to support a strong military will do so. And you can see Abu Dhabi doing this. Um, so I think that they, they offer um, a lot of advantages, some of which are a little bit dubious, to clients. Um, and the long-term implications of that, I don't know. But I will say this. Let's not cavil too much about the bad behavior of mercenaries. We have a lot of evidence for state-run militaries, which are pretty atrocious as well. Yeah. Right at the back. It seems that Can private you just say who you are? Will Duffield. Take uh, a view from Kings. No? <laughs> Not this guy. It seems as though private military companies reply, rely upon the existence of former soldiers and personnel trained by the armies of nation states. Yes. Do you see this as ever becoming a sort of supply-side bottleneck? And if so, do you think PMCs will start training their own personnel from the ground up? That's a great question. So it's a little bit like um, airlines, right? A lot of airline pilots get their start in the Royal Air Force, right? And it saves airlines, British Air, from having to train their pilots from the ground up. Um, Blackwater wanted to do this. They actually have an amazing training facility. They still have people coming from all over the place to fulfill those needs. Um, I can see a potential if the market circumstances were, were for it, I can see a company wanting to hire and, and training, not just like a one or two week course, because a lot of these companies have done that, but like a more substantial thing. But the, the bigger problem is, does it create what they call a gun drain? So um, in Latin America, I'm told anecdotally from uh, four-star generals there that a lot of Latin American special forces soldiers are leaving this force and going elsewhere. We saw this in 2004 and 2005 with Iraq. A lot of special forces soldiers in the U.S. military left the, the Army or the Marines to, then, to basically join up with a private military company to, to up, their, up their pay. So we have seen that. But some of that was more of a blip than it was a, a general trend. Okay. Um, one in front there. Let's just take uh, two questions together, if that's okay. 
Hello, Katerina Galai, um, University of Sussex. So you draw distinctions between the types of private um, contractors who perform training and those who actively engage in military operations, and yet you say, you know, if you can do one, you can do the other. So my question is, in your opinion, is it important to codify these different types of military actors, and in what way, if at all, can this codification be implemented on a national and international level? Okay, thank you. Well, you're thinking of the answer. We'll have another one. There was um, something over there? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm a master's student in, in IR here. Um, and you mentioned that the 21st century might be like the 12th century. So what were the factors which got the 12th century out of the mercenary age? Mm-hmm. Um, and should this be also the aim of the 21st century that we avoid it to become a mercenary age? Is that uh, mm-hmm. the direction we should aim to? Thank you. Okay, both excellent questions. Um, I was hoping I'd get easy questions. Um, you will. Uh, <laughs> they run out of steam. So there have... To me, it's, it's remarkable about the question of, like, at least the United States of America, the manufacturing of toys has more regulation than the outsourcing of military might, right? That has not changed in a decade of war. I am pessimistic it will change anytime soon. Um, international, the UN had a panel in 2008, 2009, looking at this question. They came down very clearly that these are mercenaries, and she's not outlawed, and the world shrugged. Um, so I don't, and now there, so I don't see any legal framework on the horizon. Uh, we'd really need some sort of Geneva Protocol that could take decades, and if it was made, it would be very hard to enforce. I mean, the thing about mercenaries is that they can shoot back law enforcement. They could kill law enforcement, right? It's not like a traffic ticket, get pulled over by the cop, and, you know, worse comes to worse, he or she can, can you know, forcibly pull, throw you in jail. I, what would we do against Nigerian mercenaries? Would we send in the UN after them? If we did, what happens to the Nigerian mercenaries killed all of your UN personnel? So it's really hard to regulate. Um, there's something called the ICOC, the International Code of Conduct, which some people are bullish on. This is a sort of a trifecta of government, uh, NGOs, and companies who get together in Geneva, or, and they say, we will abide by these voluntary principles. We will not violate them. And uh, sign up for it. And the, the appeal to a company to do that is that this supposedly gives you better, con- you're like given a clean bill of health, and so Exxon m- might hire you for a lot of money someday. We have not seen that happen. Um, the companies, there's no enforcement mechanism for this. It's all voluntary. So if a company say, for example, wipes out an entire village in Chad, they would actually have to come forward and say, oh, we just killed 50 children. Sorry. I don't think a company is going to do that. That's my personal point of view. I'm very skeptical about that. Um, I don't th- and even if there is, nothing could happen to them, really, uh, except being kicked out of the club. So I don't see any sort of... I think regulation... Those who want a regulatory solution, I think, are looking at the, uh, the, the wrong way. I'm very skeptical. In the book, I talk about how do you shape the marketplace with incentive structures to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. Uh, there's some serious caveats to that, which I get into in some detail, but it's very difficult to control this. Um, so your question about um, your dissertation-level question uh, about how do we... Um, the process of, and I, I defer to others in this room, 
the process by which states monopolize force is rather complex. So we have this idea that in 1648, magically, in the Peace of Westphalia, there are two treaties are laid out, like only states have the privilege of waging war. Uh, and the state-centric system, et cetera. Ha, you know, if you actually read the, the, the treaties of Westphalia of Osnabrück and Munster, there's no such thing in there. It's just, you know, it's a ceasefire is what it is. It was reified later on by scholars into something it wasn't. The actual process of which states gradually controlled monopoly of force, you know, started arguably in the, in the Peace of Lodi in the early 1400s, and gradually over time... Uh, arguably, the Zenith being of the 20th century, they can, they, you know, states were the, the only actors in the political stage. Um, that process is quite complex. It involves technology and circumstance and leadership and some other things. The Thirty Years' War had something to do with it. Um, I don't know how we reproduce that pattern in the 21st century. Um, so that would be a, a good follow-on book that I would encourage anybody to write. Um, but there's some debate, in the, the, the whole revolutionary, um, I forget the name of the debate, but there was a debate uh, about how this occurred. And, you know, it's a revolutionary, not a military affairs, but it takes place over 100 years. And, of course, anything that takes 100 years is not really revolutionary. Um, but that's, a, that's an excellent question. It'd be hard to replicate. Okay. Um, can we have some more questions, please? Uh, I haven't actually asked this side, so in this, let's take both of you since you're sitting next together. Um, hello, Gero Warenburg, studying history here at LSE. Yes. And as far as I remember, Blackwater was kicked out of Iraq, right? So I wondered if um, actually the capability to act within human rights regulations is in the best interest of PMCs mm -hmm. and whether, judging from your work experience, they regard it as an asset or whether the tendency to, to abuse human rights is somehow strict structurally um, included? Mm -hmm. Good question. Hi, Larry Chen. I'm an um, alumni at, the LB, at London Business School. Um, I was wondering, who in the U.S. military could authorize a use of a mercenary force? Um, so if Obama wants to conduct a small-scale war without the authorization of Congress, can, they, can he actually go and hire you guys, assuming there's a slush fund See, somewhere. you guys, you look at me, I don't know what that means. But, uh, and furthermore, I just uh, want to know that um, by executive order, I think the U.S. does not conduct assassination or torture. That's true. Um, so if somebody in the military command come to you and say, okay, I want to take someone out, or yes. um, would, you, would a mercenary company do that? Clearly, because it violates U.S. law. Would right. It, would you... Well, as an employee of the Department of Defense, of course, these views are purely my own, and I'm sure they would not do that. Um, uh, okay, to your, to your question. So Blackwater, in the context of Iraq, um, was a military enterpriser, and they really wanted to have a long-term relationship with the U.S. government, which makes sense because the U.S. government pays a lot of money. It's a good business proposition. Um, now, were there people in Blackwater who, who wanted to, or human rights defenders, or didn't work in, not human rights I don't know. Um, but if the client asks for it, most companies will try to give it. Uh, if they don't want, if they, you know, if, did, did mercenaries in Boko Haram or do so-called, alleged mercenaries in Eastern Ukraine, do they commit human rights abuses? 
we have, we have media reports that's the case. Um, and I assume that if you don't want, you know, you don't go to Blackwater if that's what you want. Um, of course, you know, Blackwater worked really hard after New Source Square to rebrand itself. It did a couple rebranding. Z was one. Uh, they, they basically, Eric Prince asked him to leave, and he did. Um, and then they, when Z wasn't working out, they rebranded themselves to Academy. Uh, and then last year, that was bought by Constellus Group, which, you know, it's just like, um, the problem, of course, is, is if rebranding doesn't solve the problem. Um, but, you know, they, companies will tell you, having worked with them, that they'll do anything. If you put in a contract and they agree to a contract, they will, they will abide by it, by and large. Now, in the Middle Ages, there were examples of bad faith on both mercenaries and their employers, both. Um, but, um, you know, they, they try to do that. Um, okay, so who authorizes mercenary force in the U.S. government? Um, well, the U.S. government would say we don't hire mercenaries. Uh, we hire private security companies. And it's really one of the really interesting things is during the whole debate in 2005, 2010, um, this industry, like all industries in America, actually had its own trade association in Washington, D.C. Uh, a trade association is like a lobby group, and you pay dues like a union or something, and it represents your interest to policymakers. And it was called the International <coughs> Peace Operations Association. Um, and like all good lobbyists, they really deployed the power of euphemism, a modern tool of warfare. And so they would, they would cringe at private military company. Even private security company makes them cringe, you know, like, oh, no, we don't do that. And they have photo, they have, like, advertisements in this journal of, like, um, Blackwater has, like, this spoon feeding formula milk to a starving African baby. You know, seriously, right? And... Um, and one of the euphemisms they said is, like, we are not private security. We are contingency contractors, right? Which means nothing, right? Contingency contractors. What does that mean? Um, and so the point about it is that few in D.C. would look at this as mercenaries. Um, Congress, who actually writes the checks for this industry, doesn't really have full access to the actual contracts themselves. Uh, if the contract is less than $50 million, the federal government doesn't have to report it to Congress. Um, there's a lot of oversight problems. Uh, who authorizes it? Um, that's, a, that's a murky question, to use a bad pun. Um, they, these are, again, military enterprisers. I don't think, you know, when I was working, I, the, the, people don't realize that it's not just the Department of Defense. The State Department also hires a lot of these companies, a lot. Um, so you can have, like, and it's not just, like, senior people. It's, like, GS-15s, you know, like, uh, like middling folks. So it's, it's a bit, um, it's a bit of, a, of a question, the transparency. Um, so I, I don't have a good answer for who hires the mercenaries to kill people. But um, anyway. Well, what about the assassination? To my knowledge, nobody's hired mercenaries to assassinate world leaders for the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> I say that out loud. I can repeat that for the podcast. But, uh, In theory, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I, my intuition would say no. I mean, if you have the CIA to do it, I mean, why would you? <laughs> Sorry. No, but I mean, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the U.S. I mean, the, but the U.S. government's not the, it's not the issue. It's like what happens if you have a, um, a smaller state that has a lot of means, a lot of wealth, but doesn't have a lot of capability? Would they do that? That's what I'm thinking about, like the Gulf states or something else. I think that's a bigger question.
Okay. Um, at the back. Right at the back there. Yep. Irina Martin, I'm an LSE student. Um, to your knowledge, um, uh, these private um, mercenary armies, do they have access to chemical or biological weapon? And if they do, who would authorize the use of those? Okay. And uh, there's another question further along. If you could just pass the microphone along. Um, I'm Matthew. I'm a member of the public. What are the prospects of Russia developing... Endangered species here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> ...of Russia developing a private militia to take out the Baltic republics? Mm, yes. Um, great question. So, um, WMD... Don't give I, free advice. Yes. You should pay for... They should uh, yes, pay for I should. Yes, this is all on, on the mirror. This is, this is, but this is a non-profit LLC, so we will... It's one time. Um, so, WMD, I, I am... Unaware of any company who has, is seeking a WMD, um, but let's remember, like we're coming over ten years of sort of quote-unquote coalition forces and usage, which has pretty much abided, has tried to abide by Western norms and rules of engagement. Um, if you think beyond that phrase, which is what I'm trying, the book's trying to make people think about, like, well, what happens next? One possibility is, yes, we have some rather unscrupulous uh, companies who can manufacture chemical weapons rather cheaply. You can probably download um, U.S. field manuals with the chemical compounds to do this um, and, de and maybe deploy them. It's possible. Is it likely? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, you know what, it doesn't make sense for a company to also want to become an international pariah by being conflated as a terrorist, right? So um, there are business interests at stake, at stake there as well. Um, Regarding um, <clears throat> Russia, many have accused, obviously, Putin and the Russian forces of the FSB hiring mercenary forces to go to eastern like Donetsk region, right? Um, these are solid proof. It's really hard to get interviews on this, right? Um, but there, there seems to be indications of that. Now, they, they, they sort of uh, plumb different labor pools than the UK and the US, they plumb mostly former Soviet republics, et cetera, and Russians. Um, and I, I, it seems to be one of, one of the instruments for Putin to use. Uh, and it doesn't seem, it seems that it's more likely, in fact, in the future. And whether he'll use them in Syria and Iraq, I don't know. There would certainly be good precedent for using them in, in Iraq. So we'll see. Right, there's another one there. Uh, right in the middle there. Uh, hi, my name is Rhett Quarles. I'm actually on holiday. Uh, <laughs> Good for you. Uh, I was wondering if you can imagine a situation where uh, a PMC might think it was more profitable to just take over a state. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and whether you can see that happening, I guess. Okay. And, um, yep. Uh, right, second row, long. Hi, I'm a SOAS alumni. I just wondered if you, um, if the public international law areas like the Geneva Conventions aren't going to regulate uh, the mercenaries on a sort of um, a human rights front, would private law suits, could they step up to regulate uh, the mercenary companies, for example, following the money, to regulate them on a more general front and the human rights front? Mm. And actually, since there's somebody behind you, yes, you might as well ask the third one. 
Uh, I'm Johan, a student here. Um, my question is about military intelligence. So first of all, how, what, what level of intelligence does these companies uh, receive from the, for example, with the U.S., um, and then also what capabilities do they have to conduct their own military intelligence operations? Okay. All right. That's a lot of questions. All right. So, <clears throat> so do, to my knowledge, uh, modern mercenaries have not taken over a state. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, despite what you might hear on, you know, in, you know, in Wall Street about the coolness of owning your own state, there's a lot of problems with owning your own state. But we did have a lot of examples of the Middle Ages. So um, Condottieri took over states like, like Milan for several generations and others. And we, we do have that. Uh, there's evidence for it. So it's, it's conceivable, not to my knowledge. Could it, could there, like there, you have narco states at Guinea-Bissau. Could there be a Merck state, you know, where... Um, you still have the apparitions of a state, but behind it, you have somebody else. Um, I can see we certainly have in public militaries Praetorian guards and stuff like that, so I could, I could see that as a feasibility. Um, regarding public international law, I am not a lawyer. Um, I don't really know how you would do that. Um, South Africa probably has the most rigorous uh, domestic law on the books against these types of actors. How you go and catch them and prosecute them and what kind of evidence you use, I do not know. Is it a feasible solution? Perhaps. But again, um, the book, my, my study is not so much looking at the legal ramifications. I'm, I'm actually, again, a little skeptical about that because it's hard to, to round up mercenaries, right? Um, it's hard to do and it's hard to prove. Now, there are, there are, the Geneva Protocols have like a definition of mercenaries, but the definition is so loose and so ambiguous that it'd be really hard to corner anybody and be a mercenary. So um, the answer is maybe, but I'd, I've not seen it. Um, and lastly, military intelligence. So a lot of these companies have, like for the U.S. example, they had security clearances, right? Like when I was in DynCorp, I believe I had a security clearance. So they will share, uh, the U.S. government will share some intelligence, but they won't share intelligence that would, you know, they have levels to it. And they, anything that might give away sources and methods, they will definitely not do. That said, there's, a, there's actually a, a quiet but burgeoning industry in private intelligence. And I've actually worked in that industry as well. <clears throat> and these are companies getting in, you know, doing like sort of mini CIAs. Um, and they serve extractive industry for the most part. Okay? Because extractive industry has no choice as to where its asset is. It has to go where the mine is, the oil mine. And they, they need intelligence. Um, is that illegal? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe it is. Who knows? Um, and I'm like my very ambiguous answer. But, um, <clears throat> but there is a private intelligence world in the English-speaking world that its centers are D.C., New York, and London, actually. Okay. Uh, there's one in the front, very front here, and then behind. Um, thank you. Caroline Varin. Um, you mentioned the mercenaries in Nigeria, and as you said, STEP was actually very efficient in what they did. Nonetheless, it caused a public outroar, mm -hmm. mostly in the international community. Um, do you think that this is because of their nationality, mostly coming from South Africa and ex-Soviet states? Um, so what is the role of nationality in legitimizing these companies? And with that in mind, how does outsourcing trend to um, to third-party nationals, um, who's going to be fighting America's wars in the future? Mm -hmm. 
And behind you. Yeah. Jim, Jim Emerson, a student here. Um, in your presentation, you, you did a comparative analysis between the mercenaries and the military enterprises. It strikes me hearing the, uh, the answers to some of the questions that you could add in a third column there, which would be terrorist organizations. Mm. Um, and how do you distinction? So it would be very easy. Um, I, someone who's fighting against something that we don't believe in, we'd call a terrorist organization, but right. they could equally just be a mercenary organization. Right. And also your, your answer to the question in relation to could a, a, a mercenary organization take over a state, mm -hmm. how do you see ISIS in that sort of situation? Okay. Um, all right. So um, outrage against Nigeria. Yes, there was public outrage, but I would say that it was short-lived. Um, people agree Boko Haram was bad, and I think people are like, can we use this against al-Shabaab or others? Uh, nationality, perhaps, but um, there was also outrage against the U.S., I would say, using, you know, after Nisor Square, people were like, what is this? I mean, again, contrast Haditha with Nisor. I mean, arguably, what the Marines did was far more egregious, yet the outrage was against the company. So I think it's actually, a, if there's any sort of locus of, of outrage, it's the fact that it's, these are private warriors and that deeply offends our sort of Westphalian sensibilities. Um, so, you know, of legitimacy, a big word for which is usually not unpacked very well. So that's, that's my thoughts on that. Um, um, in terms of outsourcing uh, who will fight for the U.S., this is a big question. I mean, y you know, the U.S. is still technically at war with Afghanistan, yet you'd never know it if you go back to the U.S., right? Um, it's sort of like the end of the Third Punic War, right? Like, it was technically still going on, but... Um, I think that this is a question when you have a public who doesn't have, quote-unquote, skin in the game. And the U.S. military officers that I teach at National Defense University are, are many of them are quite bitter about this. They feel like they're, they're the bill payers for um, sort of the tough talk of the American electorate that doesn't actually have to go and fight these wars. They're like, USA, let's go and kick butt, but like, oh, we, we don't ourselves want to do that. And I can see a possibility in the future where there's an American Foreign Legion. So the French Foreign Legion is actually not a mercenary operation. It's actually a part of the French Army. It has, uh, you know, French officers. It's part of the French chain of command. It uses French doctrine. The enlisted are from all over the world. I can see a model like that potentially for the U.S. Uh, and that would be preferable in some ways to the current model of contracting. So that might be a feasible uh, maybe not recommendable, but a feasible out outcome. Um, in terms of, um, you know, terrorists, I would ask, you could, add, you could add terrorists, you could add narcos there, right, international criminal organizations. There might even be a, a more similar thing. Um, and yes, you could. I mean, could you say a lot of the foreign fighters in Syria are mercenary because it was very transactional? The Gulf states like Saudi and, and others and Qatar paid a lot of money for, for Sunni fighters to go to Syria and, you know, take down an Alawite regime. Um, and I would also argue this, is that our idea of what is mercenary and what is not is pretty unnuanced because when we need soldiers, we give them big reenlistment bonuses. Is that not also transactional? So the spectrum between transaction and political reasons is quite, you know, it's, it's a spectrum. It's not either or. We tend to treat it as either or. Uh, and I also know a lot of contractors who are quite patriotic. They would not work for China if they were the U.S., for example. Um, in fact, one of the appeals of becoming a military contractor is you have some say over your fate. 
So when I was a soldier in the U.S. Army, if I was going back-to-back -back deployments to Iraq and was killing me and killing my family, and I was given another deployment, I could not say no. But as a contractor, you have the power to say no. I want to spend time with my family. I want to do something else with my life. That's very appealing and very human, I'd say. Thanks. Right. Yes. And then just behind. Stephen Mason, just a member of the public. Um, in the absence, as we've discussed, of a uniform code of mercenary justice, mm -hmm. are you comfortable with the personnel within the companies have a, a su sufficient control, command control of their, their personnel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, hi, my name's Isaac. I'm a student here in international relations. Um, my question is about the proportion of um, PMCs in the West versus in the developing world or, or, mm. or non-West or global South, and is that proportion changing over time? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, two or three questions. Uh, well, okay. One at the back. Yeah. Right at the back. Yeah. Sorry, I'll get you next time. That's all right. Um, that sounds hi, rather menacing. I'm a member of the public, but I also went to Georgetown. So, um, I, I guess my question is on how this is shaping relations between allies, um, whether it's through what you've seen or what you're projecting into the future. Right now, we sort of segment. We say, are you giving financial aid or military support? This seems to bridge the two and sort of create one currency. Um, I guess, how do you see that on the recipient's part? So if we're talking uh, in the, with China and whether it be it Japan or South Korea, um, yeah. On the recipient part and on the part of giving allied support. So we say recipient. What do you mean by that? The recipient part of. So I'm, I, I, um, I guess it's. Have you seen anything like that being brokered now, where someone's saying, you know, you are ally, we're asking for the support, but it can be in terms of a military enterprise. Ah. Is that something that's being more on the table? So not, not just financial, <clears throat> military, but this other request. All right. Um, okay. So. The question of UCMJ, Uniform Court of Military Justice, and of control, this is a big question, right? And this is not, it's like this for all corporate governance, whether it's, um, you know, Enron or something else. What makes us particularly dangerous, of course, is that we're talking about lethal firepower and people get killed. So this makes it like any, unlike any industry. I mean, you have, you know, the, the Ralph Nader's safe at any speed, you have tort law, but you don't have the same thing as, you know, people aiming a gun and shooting somebody. So I think this makes this industry different than any other industry out there. Um, and so, yes, those concerns are very much there. And, uh, and I, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't talk about tort law. And is there a certain classification of this? I don't not know. Um, but this is a problem. One of the problems, of course, though, is that, and somebody else asked about international law up here, is that if you regulate this industry too much, it'll simply move offshore beyond the grabs of, of Regulation. So what do you do about it? Is it better to keep them in the tent and have some sort of informal say, or is it better to have them move to, to Dubai and they can do anything they want? Um, you know, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that either. But those are, the, those are some of the concerns. The personnel within the companies are basically okay in terms of doing what should be done and not go outside? Um, <clears throat> hard to say. Hard to say. Um, I mean, corporate investigations is also quite difficult. Um, and we know this from like the SEC. Um, so 
you know, Wall Street regulations. So it's, it's, it's a good question. It's a good concern. The safety, and the safety of, this organ, of, of this industry is a, is a big uh, thing to, to, to be concerned about. Um, proportion of percentage of, of Western versus non-Western companies. I mean, I think one of the trends is the indigenization of this. So you start now seeing like private military companies in places like Iraq, uh, like in Afghanistan, and in, in places you know, coming out of Kenya. Uh, where are these companies coming from? So yes, you, you start, you're starting to see it shift now. The U.S. was this big sugar daddy. It was a monospony, meaning that it was, a monospony is, you know, one super client. And it had many sort of like, you know, little puppies that wanted to eat from its hand, right? And it'll do anything they want, anything they want. And as such, you know, the U.S. had market power to dictate norms and regulations. It really didn't do so. It failed to do so. Um, the question is, if, if you can't regulate the industry, can you have another monospony-type client who can? The answer is yes, the, but it's hard. It would have to be the UN, Department of Peacekeeping Operations. There's a lot of problems with that, uh, from ideological to practical. Um, so that, that would be... I discussed this in the book a little bit, but it would have some serious things. But you're starting to see the industry shift. It's no longer just a US-only phenomenon. It's shifting globally. And that's kind of what the, the book's really about, trying to highlight, like, this is no longer, it's not, it's, they're not, like, going away like cheap reservists. They're going elsewhere. And who are they going to and what are they doing? We don't really know. We're, we, we love ISIS, but this is a different, you know, we don't really care about this. So this is, this is a concern. Um, and relations with allies. To my knowledge, I haven't seen this. Like, okay, you know, Japan, we need... We need these things from you. And Japan says, well, we're not going to do it, but we're going to hire a company to do it for us. Um, I haven't seen that. Could it happen? Yes. Um, but I have not seen that as a sort of a trading in kind in, in, lieu, in lieu of something else. Of course, Japan at this point would probably be very happy to give a division of Japanese soldiers to a conflict, but, um, but we'll see. So. Okay. So, yeah. My name's Andrew Public. Any thoughts about Simon Mann and the very gifted Mr. Thatcher? Yes. Okay, thank you. Perhaps you can identify who those people are. Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, Simon Mann was uh, British extraction. He worked with Executive Outcomes. And in 2005, he was part of a crew from South Africa, um, allegedly with some financial backing from... Uh, Mark Thatcher, to take over Equatorial Guinea. Equatorial Guinea is a small African country in West Africa. It's an island, a very rich oil state, very corrupt government, and the idea is that he would take it over um, and own an oil state, right, to somebody's question earlier. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, South African authorities tipped off Zimbabwe. They had this plan where they would, they would fly from South Africa to Zimbabwe, pick up weapons, and then fly some to Equatorial Guinea and take over the state. Well, when they, when they landed in uh, Zimbabwe, they were basically ambushed by security forces and they were all sent to uh, Zimbabwe jail, which is not good. Um, and then she was transferred to Black Beach or Black Rock Prison in Equatorial Guinea, which is even worse. Um, and, that's, and he was there for a while, rotting in jail, and I think he's been, he's been extracted since. Um, but that too Sam and Man was, and I'll come back to that. Other questions? Or do we written his memoirs now, I think. Has he really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Uh, okay, yep. 
my name is Una Muirhead. I worked with the UK Ministry of Defence for many years, and I'm now advising the private security sector in the UK on le- uh, regulation and standards. So, mm. obviously, I found your um, talk extremely interesting and amusing, indeed. Um, thank you for that. Um, there are That's a number of things in which I agree with you. I think it is a very complex world order now, yes. um, and I think there are issues around the offshoring of security contracting into states which have, um, shall we say, fragile um, laws and regulation. So would you agree with me that actually probably you really ought to have a fourth um, column of your um, rather loose grouping of mercenary? And that is a column in which you have companies that are providing security, that their um, rules of engagement, rules for the use of force are self-defense only in defense of life. Um, that they subscribe and are held to account in relation to very strict standards that have human rights at their heart. Um, It's the only industry that does. Um, And that uh, the client has um, huge power in terms of the way in which they write the contract. And finally, that there is an element um, growing, not yet so very strong, but growing of absolute international oversight and monitoring, which has the ability to call those companies into account and to carry out some, including field monitoring, to check out what's actually happening in the field. So that's um, a regime that currently exists. You sort of brushed it aside by saying there's this thing called the ICOCA, but there's many more elements to it than it to that. So would you agree with me that a companies that are subscribing to all of those forms of regulation should be in a very different column to the two or possibly three, mm. the gentleman below that you described? Okay. Okay, so we're coming gradually to an end. Are there any other questions that people want to raise? I think, okay, we'll just take two last questions. Um, <laughs> Yes. Um, I'm Tommy. I'm an LSE student. Uh, I wanted to ask if there were any common variables uh, in the state which allowed for the emergence of these uh, private military corporations, because it seems to me at least the modern mercenary was somewhat ad hoc, Mm -hmm. and then its spread is global. So, yeah. um, And, I mean... Do you feel like you can see private military corporations coming up in China or India or other kind of states with different systems? Sure. Okay. And there was another one, I think, over there. Was that you? Yes. My name is Monica. I'm a student at King's. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, You touched on Charles Tilley, who said, among other things, that in contested polities, the difference between government and organized crime um, Mm -hmm. becomes slim to none. And you also touched upon the possibility of of, um, widespread racketeering in a neo-medieval society. Uh, Do private military companies actually have any incentive to focus on providing security, or can we expect to see them branch out into organized crime such as piracy or drug trafficking. Mm, Okay. Um, Okay, great. Thank you. Um, To Simon Mann, um, uh, I don't know what his future plans are. Uh, He's he's both, he's a bit infamous these days. What is interesting is that 
the other side of the story, there's a great book called The Wangaku, by the way. Uh, the author, who I forget, but he was like one of, I think The Economist, one of their African reporters, is quite excellent. Um, is the, the person, Marathon Oil out of Houston has a very deep relationship with Equatorial Guinea uh, at the time. And guess who was in charge of security at Marathon Oil when this happened? It was um, Bernie McCabe. Bernie McCabe is a former colonel in the U.S. Army Delta Force who joined Tim Spicer to create Sandline. So I can imagine, they all know each other. I can't imagine, like, Bernie McCabe on one side of the jail cell and some man there talking to the jail cell saying, like, what happened, bro? Or not. Maybe it's like, how dare you do this? I don't know. Um, but it's... Um, it's a good question, right? And, you know, in some ways also is, is that Simon Mann, who I've never met, I, I would think that in some ways it, this could be a, um, a bit of a misstatement and a mistake, but he seems like from a, a different era of private military is sort of a, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, what's that? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, sort of the cowboy, the, the, the Dillard, the, the sort of all that. And um, I think the private military sector right now, at least in sort of the, 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 those who wish to be traded on Wall Street, do not ascribe to that. They wish to differentiate themselves from that. Now, is that happening elsewhere in the world, like Uganda companies? Yes, yes. But in terms of British companies like Armour Group and others, they, they wish to, you know, flee. They'll leave, like, tread marks in the driveway from any allegation of that. So that's, that's I think, the difference. Um, your question about the fourth column um, of ICOC, I think, here's my issue, is that um, you know, companies can say anything and then leave. You know, Eric Prince would have said he was that in 2008, 2007. Like, we, had, we, we abide by human rights. Of course we do. And then market, condition, market conditions change. He now works for China and Africa. So what's to hold these companies accountable um, you know, if a company says, okay, fine, you know, you can, your inspectors can come to us, but they're really a nuisance. At the end of the day, it's just getting in our way, and they say, we're, we leave the ICOC, that's fine. The ICOC only works if they can dole out really expensive contracts, and there's nobody there to do it. I don't see any client saying, I will only take ICOC-qualified companies. If that was the case, it was a global phenomenon, I would say yes. Yes, it is. What, what company? Right, but do they ha are they big like, like U.S. like billion dollar clients? Yep. Really? Okay. I've I've heard I've heard uh, anecdotes about this, but I've yet to see sort of like the proof of of this happening. Um, uh, I think if I think if that if that's the case, using market mechanisms to enforce good behavior, in which case these are military enterprisers and fit in the military enterpriser column. Um, but in terms of, like, a fourth column, I, I, I've talked to colleagues, and they're very bullish on this, on the industry, uh, I mean, who are not in the industry, and I've, I just haven't seen it. But, but, um, but per, if that happens, that would be great. I would be all for it. I'd be all for it. Um, okay, ad hoc. So we are seeing um, it, companies coming out of Russia and France even, um, and, and China. There's, now, China itself hasn't really, you know, China has the largest domestic security, you know, private market in the world. 
Um, and there are some in, in China who wish to see it in a more expeditionary manner. It hasn't happened yet, but there certainly are. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, potentiality. I think it's market forces. Right now, I think I could be wrong about this, but the China, when they, when they do security forces overseas, they just actually take members of the military and, and move them overseas. They don't really... Um, but in terms of, but I think we, it's not just a unique U.S. Uh, phenomenon. And again, Russia has some of these and uh, some sub-Saharan African companies. I don't know about, like, India. I don't know if they have them or not. Um, but I think the, the, market situ- the market conditions are there. It uh, doesn't mean that simply because there's market conditions, this will spring up out of, out of nothing, though. So I'd be hesitant about that. And Tilly. Um, so your question is about PNC, uh, like, incentives? Is that right? Yes, incentives about, like, could they take over a state or... Well, what's to prevent them from becoming pure criminal organizations? Yes, and they do. <clears throat> they do. So this happened a lot in the middle. In the, um, so everybody likes Johnny Depp, right? This is a pirate movie we saw, right? Okay. All right, so he got to start as a privateer, right? Privateers are mercenaries of the sea. They work for letters of the mark. Um, this is when, like, you know, Britain would say we're at war against Spain the Caribbean, and any sort of private, you know, military vessel, I'll give you a letter of mark, and you go after any Spanish flag, just sink it, and, or take half the booty, we'll take the other half. That was a privateer. These are like for-profit, almost like military enterprisers. But when, they, when their letters of mark stopped happening, stopped coming when, you know, Great Britain had sort of taken over the Caribbean, uh, what were these unemployed privateers to do? Well, some became mercenaries. They became pirates, which are mercenaries of the sea. The same thing happens with, uh, with mercenaries of land. They become bandits. And they could, you know, use racketeering to either drum up business or they can just go become thieves and murderers. This did happen. And this has happened recently. So there's a company in Somalia, uh, a Somali-Canadian company called Somcan, that did counter-piracy. I know, right? Um, <clears throat> it's true. I had to make this up. Um, Somcan... Um, and they were doing counter-piracy off the Gulf, I mean, off of the coast of Somalia. And uh, the idea is that they would, you know, keep, you know, pirates away and illegal fishing away and illegal dumping away. But then they had a contract dispute with the government of, I don't know, Somaliland or something like that. Uh, so what they started to do was take over fishing trawlers and extort money from them. And that's what they did. And this is, this is, there's a lot of evidence historically for just this problem. And this is one of the, the dangers of a world awash in mercenaries. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Before we officially thank you, um, I just should mention two things. First of all, what I didn't disclose is, <coughs> is that you signed a uh, very lucrative contract, I think, to write a book or a series of books, novels, about a uh, private military company, the first novel of which will be called Shadow War. Yes. I didn't choose the title. You yes. didn't choose the title. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure that if it's televised, or, or rather if it's made into a film, you can probably get Angelina Jolie to, now that you practically <laughs> outed her. <laughs> the second thing is that, the, uh, that your books are, hopefully haven't been stolen, and they're still out there. They're yeah, mercenaries. And it was described by the reviewer, anonymous reviewer, as always in The Economist, as disturbing reading, which is about the best endorsement you can get. <laughs> So thank you very much for coming and sharing your thoughts.